From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We know there's no one-size-fits-all solution for homelessness, but one big idea that's being tested is literally giving money unrestricted to those struggling. We tell them, we see you, we believe in you, we're not going to tell you what to do with us. We ask how the Denver Basic Income Project is working out and hear from a man who says it's transformed his life. Then, 25 years ago, a young college student named Matthew Shepard was brutally attacked and left for dead because he was gay. His parents reflect on his legacy and their ongoing work towards acceptance. I think the impact comes from we just kept talking about Matt, telling the story, not specifically because it was about our son, but because it was a story that was happening to so many other folks as well across all of the marginalized communities. When your car needs too many expensive fixes, donate it to CPR. It's super simple. We'll even get it picked up at your convenience. The proceeds support CPR, the service you turn to for fact-based news, and new and timeless music. Let your old car make great radio happen. Call 866-415-0005. That's 866-415-0005. Or get started at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. We know there's no one-size-fits-all solution for homelessness. One idea that's being tested is called the Denver Basic Income Project. As the program approaches its first anniversary, it has released the findings of its first assessment. Maria Sierra is the Community Engagement Manager for the Denver Basic Income Project. Hi, Maria. Hi. And Willie Larkins is in the first cohort of the program. He joins us now to tell us about how it has impacted his life. Grateful to be here. So, Maria, let's get some context. Tell us about the concept of basic income. So people get different amounts of money, sometimes monthly, sometimes all at once, and you gauge the impact it has? Yes, this was a research project to study the impact of providing direct cash assistance to individuals in Denver City and County experiencing homelessness. And so basic income is this idea that if you just have uh, an income floor that no one falls under, then we all can be successful in our lives and not fall within what we see families and individuals experiencing in poverty. And I personally am excited to hear what you have learned in this year. So what does the initial assessment show so far? Well, our qualitative report came out this summer, and that really just talked about how people use this money, which really starts to change the narrative of what we hear about when you just give people money, especially those experiencing homelessness. So our qualitative report presented people's lives were improved. They used it to pay bills, to get ahead, to set themselves up in housing, to do things in their life that when you're navigating um, homelessness and and trying to move out of the trauma that you've experienced in your life, that they started to engage spaces that they don't normally do, such as spending family time together, um, planning, you know, a monthly dinner, being able to take your kids to a movie when you, you, that's not, that's not even an option when you're navigating homelessness. So that's what our qualitative report showed. Our quantitative report is showing that people who 
reported at enrollment who were sleeping outside at six months were not sleeping outside. That people reported using this money to rent a place for them to live, primarily permanent housing, longer term housing. It also improved employability amongst our three payment groups. And it improved the way that people felt about their financial health and the hopefulness in that, that they felt a little bit more secure. And for what I understand, many were able to further their education, they pursued job training, and some even launched their own small businesses. Exactly. We had a participant share with us that she used. She was in Group B, which had the lump sum up front. She utilized that money to start her own LLC and do some small marketing to get um, her business going. And then reached out to us to say, I would love to be able to try to employ some people part-time to help me in my business. Um, And she wanted to do that with current participants. I also understand that it reduced dependency on other forms of social welfare and emergency services, which could lead to cost savings for the city. Yes. One thing that uh, really stands out is people reported not utilizing emergency rooms. And that is something that people don't really talk a whole lot about or even understand the impact that when you're navigating poverty, you don't go to a primary doctor regularly. You wait until you get to the point that you can't deal and you'll go to an emergency room and the impact on that cost is huge and and people specifically reported that there were less visits to the emergency room. What would you say have been the challenges with the program? I think when you work with the unhoused community, I mean it's just that they're unhoused. So they're not in one place. So a challenge initially was getting connected with people who applied um, and were selected to say, you've been selected. Um, And how can we support you in this if you choose that? Because it wasn't a requirement. But through our 19 partners, we were able to make those connections. But another big challenge was for those currently receiving some form of public benefits, this money did have an impact on that. So our goal was to reach um, 820 people We have 807 enrolled. Some people chose not to enroll because of that impact on public benefits. Specifically, and more often, was the impact on Social Security benefits. Was there anything surprising in the results? You know, I think the surprising thing to me individually, and I think to DBIP, is the reporting of our qualitative report and this impact on well-being and mental health. People started to have hope. I think what initially impacts that is we are not telling people that they have to check a box to receive this money and continue to do A through Z. We tell them, we see you, we believe in you, we're not going to tell you what to do with this. We are going to hopefully create an environment through our 19 partners where there's this network of services that they can choose to engage. And I think that that initially created trust to build relationships that leads to that hope. Sounds like a lot of this also is, to your point, freedom to make decisions for yourself and not be kind of locked into this box like, oh, if you do this, then you can't get that. And just kind of giving someone some more independence about what they choose to do with the money. Absolutely. You know, I think if you ask the average person, they're going to say that they do have autonomy over their lives and not immediately recognize 
where we have lots of checks and balances. Um, and certainly for people who are uh, navigating poverty and homelessness, they may tell you that they don't have any opportunities to better their lives and not really understand that autonomy until they're presented with an opportunity that they don't have to check a box and they don't have to go through this long list of things to do. Just saying to somebody that we believe in you and you have what it takes to change your life, um, you just need access. And that access, what DBIP is helping create is access to money, cash. Well, let's bring participant Willie into the conversation. So Willie, how did you get involved in the Denver Basic Income Program? And what was your life like at the time? So um, I just happened to be um, expressing some of my life experiences on Facebook coming out of Florida, Melbourne, Florida. Hmm. And Mark was one of my Facebook friends at that time. And uh, basically he kind of... And it's the founder of the Denver Basic yes, Income Mark, Program. Yes. yes. And so he kind of reached out to me. We're old high school teammates, high school friends, and uh, I thought that was very special. And so we had a long conversation one night, and um, he was telling me about this program. And at the same time, uh, giving me some hope that um, this would possibly help me out in a great manner. And he just wanted to know what was my goals, uh, what did I want to achieve, and if given the opportunity, what did I plan to do with it. So I took that as an oath. I took that as an honor. And I think most participants will do that. So I was in an unemployed state, behind on bills, not having too many family contact, no support. I was solo, I'm not uh, around family or relatives. So when it came to trying to overcome some, um, some obstacles of uh, payments or being late on bills, everything got behind. And also I was coming out of a, um, my mom passing away, uh, going through a family divorce. So during that time span, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was going through a mental and depression stage, which didn't allow me any anxiety to focus on life as I should have. And so that, that led me to be subjected to a lot of the uh, environment surrounding me and just unfair treatment by people trying to scam me or if, you know, if I needed help. I came with strings attached to it, such as Section 8 and um, other programs of that nature. So, yeah. That was my stage at the time in my uh, present situation. You mentioned obstacles. What were some of the obstacles that were contributing to your instability at that time? Oh, uh, not having uh, food to support myself, not having uh, shelter or a dependable shelter. I, you know, it was facing eviction, things of that nature, not being able to get a job because I was not able to focus or get to work because of uh, transportation issues. Um, so uh, those, a lot of those personal things that uh, you need to, you know, think better of yourself, to push yourself, wasn't there. And that was quickly fixed through this program. And Maria mentioned mental health, and you mentioned mental health there. as being a part of what contributed to your situation. But I'm just curious, how did being in the program start to turn things around for you? One word, H-O-P-E, hope, and knowing that somebody was there to give me a financial foundation uh, to support me through whatever I decided to do. That meant a whole lot for someone believing in what I said I would do and 
watch me do it and prove to them that I, I was doing it. So it was almost as if, you know, when I told them I would pay off bills, I would get this straight. You know, it was very relieving of me to show them proof of that. So, you know, coming from a participant of this program, uh, it takes someone with honor. Uh, you got to have uh, a heart of a lion. And that's what I think they look for, someone that has a heart of a lion that wants to achieve and get out of a bad situation and get back on their feet. So there has to be some personal goals for a participant to uh, succeed in this program as well. It's like planting a seed and fertilizing it and watching it grow. And that's the beautiful part of it. Based on what you described, you can definitely get very pessimistic and um, almost feeling like no one's on your side. So when you heard about the program, it's like, hey, we're going to give you money. I'm just curious, what did you think about that? Were you almost like, is this real? I was knocked off my feet. I really was. I, I thought it was a, a blessing from heaven, of course. So with this program, it, it had no questions, no ties, no discouragements. So what I really appreciated about the program, it allowed me to point out and identify my immediate needs, um, hygiene-wise, um, living-wise, sleeping-wise, eating-wise. Uh, and, and it started from there to uh, once you clean yourself up, then you think better of yourself. So it's, it was a instantaneously um, rewarding and, and a, a sense of uh, pride and hope what you can do further. How much do you get in terms of money? How often? And what were you able to really do with the money that you had not been able to do before? I was able to be a part of the the lump sum initially. And immediately I paid off bills that were immediately needed to be paid. Um, after that, I, I focused on um, finding stability as far as housing showing them I had proof of uh, income that I had, uh, I can depend on for at least 12 months. So that led me to want to get a job at that time and know that with that job and with this supporting income, I had more than enough to get into housing or get an apartment. So it was an immediate uh, sense of uh, I can do this and get, get off, get off the streets or make my living situation better. So at that point, it became just working working, working to where I didn't need the program, mm. where I found a better job, to where I had less and less stress about bills, didn't have any bills, or they were gone, and here I have achieved uh, something that I wasn't able to do before because I didn't have any support to help step up to that level. So it gave me a sense of pride. It gave me a sense of worth. And it helped me to believe that I can now uh, go get a job. And it didn't have to be a, a good paying job right away because it's just something just to start and get back into the workforce. And that's how you start to build yourself. You know, you got to crawl before you walk. So um, it was definitely a great support. So it sounds like it really opened doors for you that had been previously closed. It sure did. Kicked the wide open. Uh, got me into a situation where... Um, Got a good job, uh, and the first job wasn't the perfect job, and that's what you got to understand. Being on the streets, being homeless, you got to recultivate yourself. You're going to have one job. You may have two jobs. You may have ten jobs, and I went through that trying to find the job that fit me, but at the same time, I knew I had something that was supporting me through till I got there, and it was just even more helpful knowing that. So, uh, yes. So how are things going now? Oh, it's going great. I have moved here to Denver. Um, I'm 
loving to be a great example of this program. I work as a security guard right now. I'm looking to pursue some other uh, jobs. I'm uh, looking to pursue some other jobs going forward, higher-paying jobs. I'm looking to work for FedEx, maybe. Uh, I bought a car. Uh, I have a steady income now. I have been stable now for oh a year now, going on a year. So it's it's been great. Um, I cannot say how much this has meant to me in my life and giving me a ladder to crawl out of that hole I was in. So I heard that you described it as going from surviving and probably barely the way you described it to thriving. Exactly. Exactly. I have to ask, have you been able to do anything special or fun for yourself? You know, self-care is important. Uh, I have been able to smile a lot more, laugh a lot more engage in uh, physical activities. I'm looking to get back into golfing. Um, I'm a natural athlete as back in my high school days, so I'm trying to uh, do some golfing, um, trying to uh, pursue some other avenues. I would like to meet Deion Sanders one day. <laughs> I, that's one of the that I moved here. Get in line on that oh, one. <laughs> no, I know, but uh, I tell you, I love working with kids. So um, I have reached out to him. I'm trying to send him a letter, but uh, I am looking to uh, shoot to the moon. And it sounds like you want to give back to Absolutely. the community. And, and that's something I've told the founder. I said, you know, I get to the point where uh, I want to give back monthly to this program to help it thrive. And I think uh, all participants probably will do that. And I hope they, I encourage them to do that because that's what we need. But more importantly, we need people of the city, legislation, uh, big sponsors, uh, pro teams, football, basketball. Come on, Denver. City of Denver, we have to. We should. Open your heart just as Mark, the founder, has and help people that are homeless to get them off the street. You can save not only one life, but you can save many lives. Uh, and uh, it's just all they need is motivation. Anything you want to say to critics who say, well, why should I give you money? I would say to them, um, if I'm coming to you with an open heart and an open mind about my problems and situations, and I can show you proof that I can overcome that if you give me a chance, what else is there to say? So you feel that it's really an investment that benefits others beyond you? Absolutely. It's a great investment in the community. Uh, it's, it's contagious. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it gives hope to the community. And each participant, I think, that gets involved quickly realizes that and they want to continue to be successful. Well, Maria, let's bring you back into the conversation. What feedback are you getting from other program participants? You know, I get to interact with program participants daily. Um, a lot of feedback that I'm getting is a lot of what Willie has already said, and that is they want to help change the narrative of this, and they appreciate the relationship, the trust, and the relationship that's been built um, for them to make decisions over their own lives. A lot of participants, as Willie touched on too, thought that they hit the lottery when we told them they were selected and didn't believe that it was true. We had one participant, I just have to share this, who had spent many years in the Department of Corrections and got out and was connected to one of our partners through their reentry programs. He got selected for the $6,500 up front and the money was put on his card. He came back a week later and said, I don't deserve this. There are other people who deserve this and I don't want it. 
And because of that relationship with that community partner and engaging those reentry services, the dignity in that interaction helped him realize that he deserved it, like Willie said. He deserved it. And when I hear that kind of feedback, I I mean, it, it leaves me speechless because people are expressing their feelings of being seen and and a lot of our people are not seen outside of homelessness. So homelessness itself creates a whole layer for people not to see them. Well, Willie, I see you shifting in your seat when she says that and um, reacting. So do you want to say something about that? It's totally true. Um, Let me tell you a little bit here, but it's totally true. That you have to have a certain dignity, uh, a certain pride in yourself to be a part of this program, and you don't want to cheat it. Mm. So investors need to know that when there's funding or help supporting this program, it's people that really want to do something, not people that want to cheat the program. Mm. Yeah, and it's just so impactful. I appreciate you opening up because, you know, I know that there are people who may feel differently about it, but this is personal to you. This is your life. You've experienced it, and it seems like you can relate to others in the program and how they're experiencing it. Absolutely. Uh, totally uh, can relate, and uh, that's a very great I believe that story totally because it's, yeah, I mean, it's, you got to be worthy of it. You got to feel worthy. And if you don't, uh, things are not going to change. You're going to end up doing the same thing. So uh, with that being said, uh, when you're worthy of it and you get blessed like you do in this particular situation, it only pushes you to to grow and uh, to each one, teach one, try to bring someone else along, which I try to do daily. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of loyalty and really strong emotions of appreciation from those who are in the program. Like, Like you said, not to just take, but to also give back. And do what they came to do in the program. Would that be fair, Maria? Absolutely. And I think it's because, to use the example I shared, this gentleman got out of the Department of Corrections and and we didn't tell him, you don't deserve this because you just spent that many years behind bars. We didn't say to him, you're a felon, so you can't, you don't qualify for this program. We said to him, you have an opportunity here if you want to take it. And he took it. And the dignity and just looking at somebody like I'm looking at you, who for many years of his life and others, somebody doesn't even look at them in the eyes because of them experiencing homelessness or their situation. DBIP was adamant about having dignity in this process. And with Willie sharing, it's what we succeeded. And that speaks volumes. Willie, Maria, thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That was Maria Sierra, Community Engagement Manager for the Denver Basic Income Project. We also heard from participant Willie Larkins, who shared his experience being in the first cohort of the program. The Denver Basic Income Project provides a guaranteed income to people experiencing homelessness in Denver regardless of their employment status, with the goal of ensuring, quote, a basic standard of living 
and fostering economic resilience. As the program approaches its first anniversary, it has released the findings of its first assessment. We'll link to those results later today on the Colorado Matters page on our website, which is CPR.org. You're listening to Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. Ghost stories can bring people of different cultures together. And that's just what Denverite is doing with Denver Fright. I'm Desiree Matherin. And I'm Obed Manuel, editor of Denverite, inviting you to an evening of scary tales on stage from a diverse group of local writers. We'll gather at Denver's Bug Theater October 25th. Get your tickets at denverite.com slash denverfright. That's if you dare. (laughs) 25 years ago today, a University of Wyoming student named Matthew Shepard died after being brutally attacked, tied to a fence, and left for dead near Laramie, all because he was gay. He passed away from his injuries in a Fort Collins hospital at the age of 21. Since his death, his parents have worked to empower and support the LGBTQ plus community. They created the Matthew Shepard Foundation and helped pass the first federal hate crime laws. The foundation also supports a play called The Laramie Project, which reflects on the community response to Matthew's murder. Judy and Dennis Shepard spoke with CPR's arts and culture reporter, Eden Lane. I want to begin by asking you, how are you doing this year? For me, personally, this is, I was harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, you know, we've been doing this work for 25 years now. I didn't think it would just be that much different just because it's 25 years. But it is. It's just It's just harder to think. We've actually been without Matt longer than we had Matt. Um, I think that realization's just sort of hit me. Yeah. How about you, Dennis? Just another day doing what we can to help these other kids. Straight or gay is uh, part of the part of the mission. Yeah, it's not surprising to hear you say that this twenty-five year mark is a little bit more difficult than you may have expected. Partly because we we can tell that you have worked so hard in all of this time to spread a message and to build a legacy. Tell me about this experience for you, knowing the impact that you've been able to make after these horrific circumstances. Well, the, I think the impact comes from we just kept talking about Matt, telling the story, not specifically because it was about our son, but because it was a story that was happening to so many other folks as well across all of the marginalized communities. And in particular, now, trans women of color, it's just a situation that I thought was getting better, but now we see is not getting better. I think we sort of viewed our job as to be accepting parents and how other families they should be accepting those who happen to be gay and still love them. Um, but it's turned out to be so much different. And we certainly didn't do this on our own. This was a lot of other people and a lot of other organizations all fighting at the same time for the same thing, which is equity in our country. Um, and not just for the LGBTQ community, but all the marginalized communities. We're just kind of in a mess right now. Yeah, from the previous administration when we were on a roll, all the kids are thinking everything is going to be good because we're getting everything we want. All their friends are too. And suddenly they find out they don't have what they thought they had. And that hit it right in the face with what happened with uh, 
uh, the Dobbs decision that anything and everything can be taken away if they don't pay attention. How do you fortify yourselves while you're doing this work? Well, we kind of have a new family now, right? Um, and it's their it's their commitment that keeps me going, knowing that they're still fighting for that, and I need to still fight for that as well as long as I can. Um, we're, we're doing it for them still, um, so as long as things are still a mess, we'll be here as long as we can. I do it because I'm an angry dad. If Matt was alive today, we have a younger son who's straight, so if you put them both together, even though Matt was four years older, he is not the equal of his straight brother when it comes to equal rights in this country. It's a two-tier system. And that angers me tremendously since they're both born right here in Casper, Wyoming, basically the center of the United States, pretty close to it, that uh, one of them has more rights, responsibilities, and privileges than the other one does. What's it like for you in the community now? What has changed in this 25 years? Oh, well, we live in Wyoming. That should, like, give you a clue. Um, very red. It's uh, extremely conservative. Um, we have a legislature... In my opinion, we have a legislature that does not speak for the citizens of Wyoming. Um, I don't know how they get elected, but maybe it's because people aren't voting. I don't know. But when Wyoming can have pride festivals in little towns in Wyoming, but we still have a legislature that's trying to take things away from them and absolutely not give them any protections at all, not even hate crime protection, I kind of don't understand what's going on. So. When Dennis went back to work in Saudi and I started doing this work here, people would come up to me in the grocery store when I come home and whisper to me, thank you for doing this work. I have a nephew or grandson or a friend who happens to be gay, and I really appreciate it. Well, now they say it out loud. And at Casper, we had a three-day Pride event, biggest attendance ever. So I, I just know that the legislature is not speaking for the citizens. And as you move across the country, you, you talked about you have an extended family because of the Matthew Shepard Foundation and other organizations with whom you work. Tell me about that experience of talking to young people and families the way you have for all these years. Well, I, in the beginning, I did a lot of colleges uh, when Dennis had to go back to work. And I could see the fear in those kids' eyes and the parents' But my goal in doing those lectures was to set them on fire, to mm. let them know that they had the power to make the changes, that voting counts, elections matter, and you need to have protections in place before people start to think about equality as something they can participate in. Um, but also in the beginning, there weren't many people running for office that the gay community could vote for. Nobody was running on a platform of equality for the gay community 25 years ago, right? It was... It just wasn't done. And that, that, uh, that voting she's talking about is not just at the national level. It's city, county, and state also. Yeah, we got to vote the down ticket always. And candidates who want to support you. Now we have those candidates. So please, everyone, vote. Please vote. Elections matter. I know that you said, Dennis, that you're, you're still an angry dad. And there are other dads in positions where they might feel angry, too, for a variety of reasons, including some of the challenges that some families are facing in schools. What's your advice to other fathers who would also call themselves angry dads? Don't be silent, for one thing. You have to get out of there and show in public 
that you love your your all of your children and you're supporting them and you believe that you should be the one to make the decisions on their lives and not the legislature. When we see the legislature, for example, in Texas and Florida and places like this, Missouri, basically all the southern states, taking away the decisions of the parents with their transgender children for everything from the medicines they're on to psychological or medical treatment, everything like that. My, I'm really frosted. I want to see one of these sets of parents go after, say, the Florida legislature, all the Republicans or the Texas Republicans, and and sue all of them for child support. If they're going to, if they're going to tell those parents how to raise their child, then they should be paying child support. Because these parents love their kids, and they're doing it step by step. They're doing the psychological. They're doing the medical. They're doing it step by step, carefully, to make sure that their children are on the right path and that they're happy. So the dads need to get out there and, and outshout this, the other, to me, uh, off-the-wall dads and uh, get this settled. And I'll, I'll raise my family. You raise yours and butt out. I think people don't realize how important the allied voice is to getting things done. We can say things and do things that actual members of the community may not be able to to get across, but allies have a very important voice, a very important role to play. And they outnumber everybody else, too. What, it doesn't matter what marginalized community you're in. Allies as a whole out, uh, outnumber everybody in each of the marginalized communities. When a family faces the kind of tragedy that you have faced, it's not uncommon for the relationships not to survive the journey. And your family has continued in ways that many families could admire. What's the secret to how you've been able to, to do this? I don't know that there's a secret to it. We, we did things probably different than other families would have done because we weren't together. Dennis had to go back to work in Saudi. Our other son had to go back to boarding school, and it was just me. So we grieved separately in our own way, also understanding that grieving is not a uniform process, mm. extremely personal. But also there was no guilt about what happened to Matt. We were not, if only we'd been there, if only we'd done this or done that or whatever, and we didn't part in an angry manner. And so many times that is the case. Um, all of that wasn't true for us. Um, Matt would have been in Laramie and a student no matter where we lived. So it's not, that is not something that we had to overcome. And I know a lot of families, there's a lot of guilt for different things that maybe they would have done differently. I don't think we had encountered that. Yeah, I think it is just the fact that we were all apart, that when we got together is is more to to rejoice that we were together and we could think about, Matt, what we could do to help him and focus on the foundation. And instead of a couple staying together and looking at each other and having that survivor guilt or looking at it to blame the other one, um, we had other options in it. It worked out for us perfectly. And we had a purpose. Mm -hmm. like, the purpose was to try to make the world a better place for Matt's friends and his peers. And... It gave us a reason to to move ahead. What is your reply to those that feel that the story of the Laramie Project 
which is also not just the community there, but does include the story of your son. What's your message about whether it's timely or important to continue telling? You know, I think it would be great if it really was not timely. However, there are hate crimes going against the LGBT community are on a rise. They're, they have risen more in the last few years than they had in past decade. It's incredible the amount of hate crimes against all marginalized communities have gone up. The hate's just been unleashed. They started rising starting in 2016. But just because if we talk about Matt, the story being about a young gay man, let's put in a, um, a person of color or of a different religion or a different race into this story. It's exactly the same story. I hope someday it isn't relevant anymore, but today it's more relevant than ever, in my opinion. I've witnessed how people react to you and how moved they are to meet you both in person. How do you take that in and how do you process the kind of reaction that you encounter? I think from the very beginning, we understood people needed to share their stories. It's an honor that they trust us. Yeah, I look forward to it because, you know, I went back to Saudi for Arabia for 12 more years after we lost Matt. And when I started coming back uh, on my vacations and, and going to these events with Judy to listen to her speak or both of us speaking, I run into what you might call a second generation. Mm. These are middle-aged now, you know, 25 years later, men and women who were in high school or college when they heard Judy speak. And a lot of them have told me they came back to get another mom hug because they were on their last desperate legs. They were thinking about suicide, and, and they'd just given up hope. And Judy spoke, and they realized that they needed to keep pushing forward, not letting the, the other side win. And uh, so they're coming back just to tell their story and how successful they are now because she gave them that, that hope and that desire and that encouragement to... Uh, push forward. So I I love it because, especially the young people, because they don't know who Matt is. None of them were born. Mm-hmm. And so for them to hear the story and realize that they didn't realize the amount of, of discrimination and they're shocked about it, even though it's going on right now. So it, it, to me, it, it's just, it energizes me. And then you're getting, there were so many young people whose families had rejected them, who just wanted some positive voice. It was an honor. You talked about hope for them a couple of times, and I'm wondering if you have hope yourselves still. What gives you hope? I don't think I could go on if I did have hope. What gives me hope now is the younger generations. They have grown up in a world of acceptance, um, they're not going to go back. They're pretty angry. You saw that in 2020 and 2022 in the elections. They realized they'd have the power uh, of the vote. And they don't care who's holding whose hand, opposite sex or same sex. Big deal to them. They're more concerned with gun violence, climate change, uh, the war in Ukraine. What are they going to do when they get out of school? Are they going to have a job? That's a priority. Who's holding whose hand means nothing. And that's why they're going to make the changes. 
and I'm thrilled. And I just have, we just have to keep reminding them that they have to vote, but they also have to think about running for office. Because the young people 25 years ago, from say 10 to 25, now are the ones, because they had all the candlelight vigils and the protest marches and everything, there were a lot of allies because they did realize all the discrimination, violence against the LGBTQ community. It woke them up. It woke us up. We didn't know. But now, those young people who are, like I said uh, before, are middle-aged, they took that activism and angst with them. And you see that in the changes that have been made in various states, uh, in the hate crime laws, in job discrimination, and even up into, into the national, in corporations. Corporations now, all of them are saying, we don't care, same sex, we don't care who you are, we just want you because we want the best, because we want to continue to succeed. We'll continue to expand and to make money, and you can't do that without the best employees. So they don't care. And then the military, who were the ones primarily earlier against the LGBTQ community, now they are the only organization in the country where you have complete freedom, all the rights, and all the benefits of every other American citizen. So changes being made, we just have to keep reminding the young people that there's more to be done, and they have to do it. They can't do it uh, if they sit and watch somebody else vote. I know you do so many interviews, and I I read and, and watch many of them, and I just wonder, what's the thing that you always hope you get a chance to say? that you're not often given the chance to say because of time or they just didn't ask, what would that be? I think I, I just really always want to remind people that Matt was a human being, not... Not a martyr, not a saint. Yeah, he had flaws. He was just an or If you ever see the oratorio, considering Matthew Shepard, one, one of the musical pieces in there describes him. It's titled Ordinary Boy. He was no different than anybody else. And that's what we need to remind people. Dennis and Judy Shepard speaking with CPR's Aiden Lane. They are the parents of Matthew Shepard, the gay college student who was brutally attacked and left to die in Laramie, Wyoming. He passed away from his injuries in a Fort Collins hospital 25 years ago today at the age of 21. When we come back, the Arvada Center is staging the Laramie Project. Eden talks with those involved about how it still resonates today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It peaks at just 11,000 feet, but as the largest flat-top mountain in the world, it certainly lives up to its name, Grand Mesa. Broad and wide, Grand Mesa is capped by a layer of uneroded basalt that dates back to volcanic eruptions 10 million years ago. Rising tall over the dry, high desert, it's graced with hundreds of lakes and home to multitudes of trout, bear, cougars, elk, deer, and according to Ute legend, thunderbirds 
whose mighty wings could whip up ferocious storms. After a massive and deadly mudslide on Grand Mesa in 2014, one witness described a sound like a big clap of thunder. And on the western face of Grand Mesa, there's a rock formation that does look like a thunderbird. A reminder that others have called Grand Mesa by another name, Thunder Mountain. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With the support of National Jewish Health, breathing science is life. Before the break, we heard from the parents of Matthew Shepard, the University of Wyoming student whose murder drew national attention to anti-gay violence 25 years ago. A landmark play inspired by the tragedy has just returned to the stage in Arvada. CPR's Eaton Lane talked with those involved about the production's lasting impact after two and a half decades. The documentary theater piece, The Laramie Project, uses interviews with hundreds of the city's residents, intertwined with excerpts from media coverage and diary entries from the actors who originated the play to paint a portrait of a community in the wake of a horrific hate crime. Even now, a quarter of a century after Shepard's murder, The Laramie Project is a risky production choice for the Arvada Center Theater, says co-director Rodney Lisgano. Unfortunately, we're, you know, we're commemorating the 25th anniversary of his death. And, and so those conversations of, have we changed? Has the needle moved? Has the iris opened up? It has it really, yes, the gay community and the queer community, we've, we've achieved towards marriage equality, but the hate towards those communities hasn't changed. Liz Cano is co-directing the show with Kate Gleason. It was very important to me early on in the process that our cast and our creatives were largely queer. It felt very important to me. It felt important to me in telling the story. It felt important to me in the times that we're living in. So having this uh, amazingly inclusive and diverse group of uh, artists has been incredible. The Laramie Project was developed by Moises Kaufman and the New York-based Tectonic Theater Project, who went to Wyoming to conduct interviews for it. The piece first premiered at the Ricketson Theater by the Denver Center Theater Company in February 2000. When the play first came into the world, it sent a shockwave through many communities that had the chance to see it. For a time, it was one of the most produced plays in the country. But when the Arvada Center announced its new staging, there were some who questioned bringing it back. I remember reading one person say that it's not relevant, that they should pick a different story, that this Laramie project is no longer relevant. Stephen J. Burge is an understudy in this production. And it punched me in the gut because it's very relevant. Last year, there was the shooting at Club Q. Our people are still being killed, still the victims of hate crimes. This is a very personal play for Burge, mostly known for comedies. When the murder happened, He was the same age as Matthew Shepard. I had just recently come out, and my family was finding their way through love. There was always love for me, but they were finding their way through love to acceptance. When this happened, it sort of almost gave them confirmation that everything they worried about was valid, that I was going to be beat up, I was going to be murdered, I would get HIV. All of these terrible things associated with being gay happened. The play strikes a chord for younger members of the cast, too. Chris Duran is making their professional debut in this production after just graduating from MSU Denver. This one, I had actually never heard of it before. So I looked up this one specifically and I knew immediately that it was something I wanted to be a part of. Why? Because of the importance of it. Looking into it, I saw like all the the history of it and how much the story of Matthew Shepard impacted 
the world and it being like such a catalyst for queer activism or just something that started a conversation. Um, and that is something I love being a part of anyway. Anne Oberbrockling is one of the eight actors and four understudies assembled for this cast. She copied a quote from Billy Porter's new book into her script to help her with the task of portraying some of the play's openly homophobic characters. My life is testimony to the power that art has to heal trauma. Isn't that amazing? It's beautiful. And he also said, your service, because he talks about acting as get the ego out and it's the service, it's service. Your service is leaning into your truth, your queerness, your authenticity. But I think both of those things, to, to me, represent what we're doing and why we're doing it and why this play is being done here. One of the play's directors says the goal isn't to treat the Laramie Project as a museum piece from an earlier era, but to continue the conversation about how society defines love, hate, and compassion. The play runs through November 5th at the Arbata Center. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. Matthew Shepard's parents, Judy and Dennis, will host talkback sessions at the Arvada Center on October 28th and 29th. It's recommended that those who attend see the Laramie Project before attending. We should note that the Arvada Center is a financial supporter of CPR, but has no influence on our editorial content. That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.